up a series all about the lies that we have believed, and it originated in the garden with the serpent, deceiving Adam and Eve by the question, with the question, did God really say? And we have been asking that question ever since. Did God really say? And so uh, we're talking about some of the lies we believe. We started off talking about how, you know, truth is greater than our feelings, that God did create us to be people with feelings, but that, that truth needs to come over that, and it's specifically God's truth, not my truth, not the truth of this world, because that is not truth, but God's truth is greater than our feelings. And we talked about the second week, a lot of the lies that we believe about God, and there's no way I can recap all of that. You could just go online and listen to the sermon there. And then we talked last week about some of the lies we believe about relationships, about community, about others. And again, no way I could uh, recap all of that, so I'm not even going to try. But today we're looking at some of the lies we believe about ourselves. Lies we believe about ourselves. And as I was praying through and thinking through the order to put these, my, my inclination was to start with lies we believe about ourselves, then lies we believe about relationships, and then lies we believe about God. But I put ourselves at the very end because I think that is how we are actually supposed to think about ourselves, scripturally speaking. That, though, stands in stark contrast to how the world wants us to think about ourselves. Case in point, Frank Sinatra, I've got a little song with the lyrics on it. You've heard this undoubtedly, but this song has 69 million views. Go ahead, let it play, let it roll. I'll, I'll give you some commentary. So Frank sang this towards the end of his career, the end of his life, and this was kind of like, you know, his, his, his swan song, so to speak, right? And if you go read the comments on this video in particular, they're all just, it was such a great way to end his awesome career. I wanted to be, I wanted to be the next Frank Sinatra when I was growing up. This was one of the songs that I would learn to sing. If you know it, you can sing with me. This line. I did it my way. That sounds like a great line, doesn't it? I did what I had to do. We say that. Just got to do what you got to do. break this whole song down line by line and, and make a counterpoint from Scripture about it. I'm 
That's all of life, by the way, more than you can chew. I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall and did it much. laughing at you, Frank. If not himself, then he has not say the things he truly feels, uh oh, and not the words of one who kneels. Sing it with me. The record shows I took the blows and did it. My Frank Sinatra moment. That's the theme song of our, of our world, of our generation. I did it my way. If nothing else, at the end, I did it my way, right? Well, I, can, I will be able to lay on my deathbed and feel good about my life as long as when I'm laying there, I know that I did not cave to anyone else's expectations, pressures upon me, or ways of living their life that they thought was better than mine, because as long as I'm laying there and I can say I did it my way, at the end, I will have succeeded. All of this undergirds the lies that are rooted in the rebellion that we saw back in the garden. The rebellion that we see in the garden is, in fact, our rebellion. Now, I want to warn you, I've got, got notes in front of you. I've got a lot to cruise through here this morning. I'm going to try to wrap this up uh, in as good a fashion as we can. But uh, I will record this. We'll share everything. So if you get lost, just try to track with me as best you can, but we've, we've bought this lie, the, the biggest lie that I think we believe about ourselves, this isn't the first lie yet, but the biggest lie that undergirds all of the lies is that it's our life. It's my life, and I can do what I want with it. 
In the beginning, in the garden, God created this paradise for Adam and Eve to live in, and and they had access to all of paradise except for one thing. God gave them access to all of paradise except for one thing, and he said, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that wasn't good enough for us, right? And the Bible teaches us that we, through Adam and Eve, rebelled against God in the same way. And if they hadn't done it, we would have done it. So we, you know, God gave us everything except for this one thing, which had everything to do with believing God and trusting Him. But that wasn't enough. We needed it all. We had to have everything. And so we listened to the lie and we rebelled against God, and we did it our way. This is the lie that that I think is foundational to how we are living our lives in this society today. In fact, it has been this way since the very beginning. We've been doing it our way. So I want to look at, at five specific lies, and they all have some other lies that go under them. And like I said, I want to cruise through them. There, there's a lot of lies and sub-lies. And again, my goal is not to, not to address every single lie, but is instead to give us a, a, a matrix through which to look at the world, a paradigm to see the world, so that we can look for the lies that we're believing in our lives. And these lies that we're believing in our lives are affecting us and our relationship with God and our relationship with others, which is what we were designed for. And so we need to address these lies that have put cracks in the foundation. Remember that picture at the very beginning where, where the foundation is on God and His message and His truth, and a life built on that message will look a certain way, will act a certain way. But these lies have put cracks in the foundation and, and our, our houses are falling down because of the lies we're believing. So the first lie is this. Lie number one, I don't need to forgive that person. I don't need to forgive that person. And for all of us, probably in a moment, we instantly had somebody pop into our mind that we don't think we need to forgive. Or at for most of us, we've probably struggled to forgive. And I'm sure there are a lot of us who have forgiven that person. But we believe the lie, I don't need to forgive that person. And our culture justifies this. We have every right not to forgive them. You have every right not to forgive that person after what they did to you. But that's a lie. That is a lie. We have to forgive even that person. What is forgiveness? Simply put, forgiveness is canceling the debt. So it's taking whatever that person owes me or whatever that person needs to do to make things right and canceling it out. Whatever that person owes me or whatever that person needs to do to make things right, it's canceling it out. That's what forgiveness is. I don't have time to get into it. I'm not saying that we should automatically trust someone who has done something to us, but we do need to forgive them. Refusing to forgive someone who has harmed you keeps them chained to you. 
keeps us tied to the person we need to forgive. So what do they owe you? What does that person owe you? What do they need to do to you or for you to make things right? Matthew 18, verse 21 addresses this specific situation and this whole series. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Seven is a number that represents completion in Scripture, and Peter, probably feeling like he was justified in his answer, thought, that is plenty. I mean, if somebody does something to me once, then, you know, then twice, okay, I need to forgive. Or how many times? Up to three or four times? All the way up to seven times? But Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or some translations say 70 times seven. How many times do we forgive? as many as it takes. And then he shares a story to illustrate. He says, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So when you're reading the Bible and you see that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, you need to pay special attention because this is what the kingdom we have been brought into is like. We've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and so the kingdom of heaven is like this, so we need to pay attention because this is the kingdom for those who believe. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Your translation might say 10,000 talents. A talent was like a bag of gold. A talent was essentially 20 years' wages, maybe even more. So this man owed 10,000 bags of gold, 10,000 talents, 10,020 years' wages. In other words, millions and billions, if not trillions of dollars. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that they had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before the king. He said, be patient with me, he begged, and and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins A silver coin would have been about one day's wages, so about a hundred days' wages. He grabbed him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and, and I will pay it back, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told the master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant, and you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
When we don't forgive someone who has sinned against us, we fail to realize how we have sinned against God. And the debt that we owe God, which God has canceled, by the way, the debt that we owe God is far greater than any debt that someone else could owe us for what they've done to us. Someone may, someone may have sinned against us in an egregious fashion, and yet none of that compares to the sin all of humanity is guilty of, which is looking at God and saying, I don't need you. I am my own God. Get out of my way and let me sit on your throne. You don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do it my way. This is the sin all of humanity is guilty of. This is the underlying sin for everything. And if we don't see how God has forgiven us of so much, and because we have been forgiven so much, we have no reason not to forgive anyone who has harmed us by comparison. They are such small offenses. So this is a lie. We do indeed need to forgive that person. Lie number two. The way to be more fulfilled in life is to focus more on me. The way to be more fulfilled in life is to focus more on myself. You just need to work on yourself, pay more attention to yourself, love yourself. You need to focus on yourself. Does this sound familiar? Second, uh, Second Timothy verse 3, one says this, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. The first thing he warns Timothy to look out for is people who are lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, having to have nothing then to do with such people. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. This is Paul, I didn't write this. Who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. We should not look at the advice of an unbelieving world around us, an unbelieving culture around us that says, you just need to love you. You need to focus on you. You need to pay more attention to yourself. You need to love yourself better. And think that this is wisdom. Those who are pursuing this will be always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is a lie, that the way to be more fulfilled in life is to focus more on myself. That I need to work on myself first. If I can't love me, I can't love you. Because I'm supposed to love you like I love myself. You have no idea how many times I have actually heard that preached. We're supposed to love others like we love ourselves. And if you don't love yourself, well, then you can't really love others. If you can find it in the Bible and, and you can correct me, I would, I would love for you to do that. And that's, a, that's an, actual, an actual thing. If, if you find this in the Scripture, then please correct me. 
But from my searching, from my study, the Bible never says that we need to love ourselves first or more. It always assumes that we already love ourselves too much. As, as I'm looking through it, I, I, I cannot find anywhere that the Bible says, okay, you need to love others, but you really don't love yourself well enough, and so you know, just go and go on whatever it takes, go on whatever journey you need to go on so that you can finally love yourself. And if you ever are able to love yourself, then you can finally love others, but if you can't ever love yourself, you're never going to be able to love others. I hear no such talk in Scripture Ephesians 5.28 says, In this same way, husbands ought to love their lives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body just as Christ does the church. It seems to me the assumption Scripture makes is that no one ever hated their own body. No one ever hated themselves. The way to be more fulfilled is to focus more on myself. Part of this is, well, I, I only have to do what I feel like doing. If I don't feel like doing something, then I shouldn't have to do it. Don't you tell me what to do. If I don't feel like doing it, then I'm not going to do it because I only do what I feel like I have to do. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. I think that's pretty clear. I only have to do what I feel like doing. Um, actually, what you feel like doing is probably in direct conflict with what God wants to do in your life, and instead of doing what you only feel like doing, you probably need to do the opposite of what you feel like doing all the time. This is another big one. I deserve or I need if I only had. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. If we have a need, God will supply what we need. So we don't need to live our lives consumed with the I deserve, I need lie. We just need to trust that God is going to provide what we need. He's going to supply our mission as His followers, as His disciples here on this earth. He will give us what we need to live out this relationship He has given to us. And so we don't need to worry about that. God has that taken care of, and He provides for the sparrows, and we are worth more than many sparrows. This last one in the category of I, the way to be more fulfilled in life is to focus more on myself. This has this kind of undergirding pride and arrogance where I know more or better than anyone else. I know more or better. I know better than anyone else in this room. And if you would just listen to me, which you may feel like, well, isn't that what you're doing? Well, I'm doing my best as the servant up here God has put up here for this Sunday to point you to God's word, not my words, to God's truth, not my truth. Which is why on a sermon especially like this, you'll find me using a lot, a lot of Scripture. (coughs) 
Isaiah 5, verse 21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Proverbs 26, 12, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-31, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Line number three. This doesn't sound like it's about me, but it has everything to do with lies that we believed. Jesus is one of many ways. This is a lie that is strong in our day. Jesus, he's just one of many ways. There's a lot of ways to get to heaven. There's a lot of ways to get to God. And and Jesus is just one of the ways to get there. And we say, well, what kind of loving God would make make only one way to get to him? Certainly God would, would all these other people who are are in all these other religions and who are chasing after God, certainly God's going to let them in for the good lives that they've led. If you give me a second, I'm going to show you that that's not actually loving. John chapter 4, 14, verse 5 says, Thomas said to him, Lord, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I have felt that same urge in my heart and my soul, thinking about people who are led astray under other ways. But here's what we really need to understand. If there was another way, there would have been no need for Jesus to come. What I know about me is if God had made nine ways, I would have wanted ten. If God had made 999 ways, I would have wanted a thousand. I would have always wanted just one more. that question, how could a loving God only have one way to heaven? How could a loving God make their only one way to eternal life, which is relationship with the Father? How, could, how can that really be loving? How can, it, how can you say it's, it's not loving? Should be the question we're asking. Because shouldn't we be thankful that there's a way at all? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we have this overwhelming gratitude that God has made a way? 
God provided a way for us. He didn't have to. He chose to. He made a way for us. And if you think about it, it is the most loving thing that He could do to make there be only one way because we don't have to spend our lives bouncing from way to way to way hoping we've found the right one. There's just the one way. Jesus is the way. He made the way for us. If we don't believe that truth, then we will find ourselves living out of our own strength and our own flesh and our own ability to pursue a way that is other than that, and that is a lie because that's the lie that I think I can earn my right with God, which leads us into this next lie, lie number four. I have to fix myself before God will accept me. I have to fix myself before God will accept me. I have to get myself right before God will accept me. I have to do whatever it takes so that I can be a good person, and then God will accept me. But He's not going to accept me until I'm a good person. I can do it on my own. I I don't need anyone's help. I'm strong enough to do it by myself. Or on the flip side of that, we say, I'm not worth being loved. I'm not qualified. God could never use someone like me. Another lie we believe is that I'll never change. I cannot change. I am who I am. Don't you dare try to change me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. I have to fix myself before God will accept me. So what you're saying is I have to, through the works that I perform in my body, that, that I, can, I can actually earn my own salvation and earn my own place with God, my own standing with God. Well, no, you can't. I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody's help. Well, no, you can't. I'm not worth being loved. I'm not qualified. God can never use someone like me. Well, actually, yes, you are, because it's not about you. It's not about your own righteousness. It's not about your own failure. So it doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus, who died on the cross and paid the price so that we could enter into God's presence. It's not about me. It's about Him. Line number five, God can never love someone like me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the mistakes that I've made. You don't know just how much I have sinned against God. You don't know the things that I've said to God. You don't know the things that I've said about God. You don't know the things that I've done to other people. You don't know the things that I've said about other people. There is no way on this earth that God could ever love someone like me. I mean, just look at the wreck that I am. There's a huge, huge problem with that. What that is saying is that my sin is more powerful than God's love. What that is saying is that there is something in my power that I can do to defeat God's love for me. 
Saying that God could never love someone like me is saying that there is something that I can do to make God not love me. But that's a lie. There's nothing we can do to make God not love us. You've heard me say before, you can't outsend the cross. We are not powerful enough to outsend the forgiveness of Christ on the cross. Now, that doesn't mean we should try. But we cannot outsend the cross. My sin is not more powerful than God's love. God can never love someone like me. All of humanity are like you and me. God loves us. Or we'd say, well, if God really loved me, he'd, he'd do what I wanted him to do and let me do what I want to do. It's like people who think that listening means agreement. I'm sure none of us in this room are that way. But, but there, there's kind of this big misconception going on in our world today that, that, you know, you didn't hear me if you don't agree with me. Well, I heard you. You're just wrong. I'm not right about everything. I'm not that guy. But we think that listening means agreeing, and if you didn't hear me, or if you don't agree with me, that means you don't hear me. If God really loved me, he'd do what I wanted him to do and let me do what I want to do. Well, it's actually because God loves you that he doesn't let you do what you want to do. It's because God loves you that he's got an entirely different way for each and every one of us that's so much better than all of our ways, by the way. It's so much better than all the ways that we've tried our entire lives. It's because God loves you that he has an entirely different plan for you, and he wants to rescue you out of your broken and fallen and distorted and trash garbage heap of a plan that you think is good, and he wants to save you out of that and bring you into his much better plan. That's, that's why God loves you no matter what you've done. Well, if God loved me, He would accept me as I am and not want me to change. I can't change. If God loved me, He wouldn't want me to change. Well, if you have not yet come into Christ, there is a truth to that, a partial truth at least, that God does love you as you are that there is nothing that we need to change for God to, loves us, to, for God to love us. But once we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come, and it's because God has loves us, loved us that he actually wants to change us, to, to shape us out of that fallen image which was cursed and marred back in the beginning when we rebelled against God, and Adam then went under the effects of the curse because of his rebellion, and he wants to shape us out of that broken and marred image into the perfect and spotless image of his son, Jesus Christ, and it's because of his love that he wants to change us. It's because he loves us that he doesn't want to leave us broken and wounded and hurt and bound for destruction. He wants to bring us out out of that and into his perfect plan for our lives. It's because he loves us that he wants to change us. You can change, and God wants to change you. God wants to lead you into his path of righteousness. See, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, You see, 
At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God can never love someone like me. He died for you thousands of years before you breathed your first breath. He demonstrated his love for us and the extent that he was willing to go for us by sending his son to die on the cross for us. God loves you. God loves you. As we bring this series to a close, I want to turn to a different passage here, one that has been dominating my thinking recently, Revelation chapter 12. I'm not going to get into trying to explain all the ins and outs of the book of Revelation or this particular chapter, other than to say that there are some now and not yet aspects of it. There are some, God has already done this, God is doing this, and God will do this aspect, aspects to this story, to this story that we hear in Revelation chapter 12. But there, there, is, there is some significant content in here that, that I think needs to start to dominate our approach to living for Christ. Revelation 12, 7, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, listen to this, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accusers at Satan of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So the accuser Satan for our brothers and sisters, that's you and me, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They, that's us, you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, we triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. One of the, one of the clips I've talked about, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Satan does exist. And he is fighting furiously against us. He is fighting with ferocity against the kingdom of light. 
And Satan, knowing that his time is short, will do everything that he can to get us to rebel against God and to do things our own way, just like he did at the very beginning, that serpent the devil did in the beginning. He surrounded us with lies on every side. He has, he has encompassed us with deception. And if we don't know what the Bible teaches, that could be a terrifying thought. But God has already given us the victory. Take a breath. God has already given us the victory in Christ Jesus. We are victorious. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 through 56. This is a both a, the same thing like we've been talking about. It's a now and a not yet passage. There is still a, a part of this which we will have to face. We will have to go through death. But when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, Paul is talking about the resurrection, and when, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Even though we will still have to go through death, there is just a little bit of a sting to it. It is no longer as scary as it used to be. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us the victory. Satan has already been defeated. Satan has already lost. There is no victory for Satan. That is already predetermined. There is no question, like we said back in the sermon about God, that there's no question whether good or evil is going to win out. It's just that God has already won. That is the truth of the world, the truth of the universe. Satan has already been defeated. There, there is no victory. His end is already determined, and it is eternal destruction. 1 John chapter 5 says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So it is by believing in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, and coming to the Father through him, the only way, the truth, and the life, that we actually have victory over the world. And who has victory? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Satan's destiny is destruction. For those who are in Christ Jesus, it is glorification. But here's something that I want to spend our last minute or two on. <coughs> Verse 11, they, that's us, we, those in Christ, triumphed over Satan, over him, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We have triumphed, not we will triumph, but we have already triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Not through anything we have done. There is no incantation that we need to learn so that we can triumph over Satan. We have already triumphed over Satan, not because of what we do or what we say, but because of Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb. 
Satan has no power and no victory. We have triumphed over Satan by the word of our testimony. What is our testimony? Our testimony is that we have been eternally forgiven by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's our testimony. The blood of the Lamb is our testimony. Our testimony is that Jesus has risen from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave, the worst that Satan can throw at us. All of that has already been defeated by Jesus resurrecting from the, from the grave. Our testimony is that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We are victorious in Christ Jesus. So so there is no power that Satan actually has over our lives. There is no power that the enemy has over our lives. All that we need to do, and listen to this, please hear this clearly. This is the most important thing about what we're talking about today. All we have to do is testify about the victory of the blood of the Lamb, and Satan is powerless. This is why testimony is such a huge part of the church life, that we just need to testify about the blood of the Lamb, and Satan has no power over that because he cannot have power over that. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who's going to bring a charge against you if you're in Christ? Who can do it? No one, because it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not just conquerors, but more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers nor depth nor height nor anything else in all creation will separate us. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's one more thing. It's not just the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. It's the perfect end to what we've been talking about today in this series. The world will tell you you need to love yourself more, but the Bible will tell you you need to love yourself less. I'm not talking reckless death, right? I'm not talking that we're just, you know, not afraid of death so that we jump out of an airplane without a parachute and trust that God's going to catch us on the way down. That's not, not what I'm talking about. But 
Listen closely. We may never experience this, but we may be heading towards a world where we experience this. I don't know. If Satan brings the worst he's got at you, which is death, what are you going to choose? So we have, we have a history, a tremendous heritage and history in the church of those who were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who did not shrink from death, who did not love their lives more than being martyred for the cross of Jesus Christ. When Satan throws everything he's got at you, when he brings it all on you from every angle, from every side, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to save your physical life or your spiritual life? Which do you love more? See, if we were to be truly, actually persecuted for our faith in Jesus, would we deny him or testify about him? We see time and time and time again throughout the history of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ that when they are faced with dying for him, being martyred, put to death for him, they went to the grave praising God. Throughout, throughout our whole history as a church, we see that time and time again, that, that those who are put to death for their faith in God went to their death praising God. Would we do that? Would we do that? Would, if we were to be persecuted, if we were to be taken out and put in front of a massive audience and mocked for our faith in Jesus Christ, if we, were, if we were being crucified upside down like Peter was, if we were put in stocks or whatever most humiliating thing you could imagine, if we were put on display and they were saying, just, just, just deny him, don't just say he's not real, say he's not real and we'll let you go, we'll let you out. But we love our lives so much that we say, okay, I surrender. Or have we already surrendered to Christ? See, the truth is, one way or another, we're going to surrender. One way or another, we're going to surrender. We'll either be forced to eternal surrender through an eternal death, or we can choose to surrender now and receive eternal life. Charles Spurgeon said this, but yet, dear friends, powerful as this infernal spirit talking about Satan certainly must be, His power is defeated when we are resolved never to be at peace with him. We must never dream of terms or truce with evil. To suppose that we can let him alone and all will be well is a deadly error. We must fight or perish. Evil will slay us if we do not slay it. Only our safety will lie, our, our only safety will lie in a determined, vigorous opposition to sin 
whatever shape it assumes, whatever it may threaten, whatever it may promise, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit alone can maintain in us this enmity, this fight against sin. According to the text, it is said of the saints, they overcame him. We are never to rest until it is said of us also, they overcame him. He is a foeman worthy of your steel. Do you refuse the conflict? Do you think of turning back? You have no armor for your back. He's talking about the spiritual armor that that is uh, explained in Ephesians chapter 6. There's no armor for our back. There is no armor for us when we retreat. Our only option is to resist. To cease to fight is to be overcome. Have we given up the fight? Have we stopped resisting Satan? Have we given up the fight on all of the things that he has thrown at us? Have we just embraced all of the lies that are surrounding us from every angle? Have we just given up the fight and embraced it? Have we turned our backs and exposed ourselves as weak? To cease the fight is to be overcome. You have the choice between the two. Either to gird up the loins of your minds for a lifelong resistance or else be Satan's slaves forever. I pray that you may awake, arise, and give battle to the foe. Resist once for all by the grace of God. You will be numbered with those who overcome the archenemy. My deepest desire for us as a church is that all the arrows that Satan would hurl our direction would just be met with victory. That there would be nothing that Satan could throw at us because we stand in the victory of Christ Jesus. But have we given up the fight? Have we given up the fight? Have we stopped trying to resist the pull of Satan into the lies of the world? Because all we have to do is stand. That's what the Scripture says. All all we have to do is stand, and we're victorious. Not because of anything we do, because of what Christ has already done. Let's stand together. Ask, if you will, as you bow your heads, close your eyes. The worship team comes take communion together in just a few minutes. Is there a victory that you need to testify about? When was the last time you testified about the victory of Jesus Christ? When was the last time you spoke of the victory that Christ has in your life? Not even just to unbelievers and those outside the faith, but amongst us believers. Have you encouraged believers amongst the faith that that we are victorious? And here's how I'm seeing this victory. Have we stopped resisting? Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but our fight is against this very thing. God has already won the war 
where we stand victorious in the battles. Faith is the victory. Not what I do, not my own strength, not my own abilities, not my own religion, but my faith in the one who has already accomplished the victory. That is where victory lies. Are we standing in victory? Have we, have we stood firm and after we have done everything that we can to resist, are we still standing? Heavenly Father, I pray right now in this moment. I pray, Father, for every single one of us gathered in this room. I pray for myself. I pray for those who aren't here, who are part of our church. I pray for all of Christianity around the entire world. Father, I pray right now in this moment, bring to mind the truth of Scripture that we are more than conquerors. We are victorious in Christ Jesus. I pray, Father, that for all who believe, all of us who truly believe in Christ Jesus, that in this moment you would just remind us of that truth through the power of the Spirit and that you would build us up right now in the faith that we are victorious. I pray, Father, that as we leave this place, that we would leave this place full of the confidence that we have overcome and that anything that we face in the week ahead that would seek to overthrow us, that would seek to overcome us, we have already overcome it through the power of the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ who sent the resurrection Spirit of Christ to dwell in the hearts of all who believe that we are not slaves to death, we are slaves to life. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, that you would over all of us now, as your spirit is here in this place, as you have gathered here amongst us, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that over every single one of us, you would just pour your spirit in a new and fresh and way, that we would just receive what you have for us this morning in a way we've never received it before. And I pray, Father, that as we leave this place, we would leave empowered by the spirit of the living God, ready to go be victorious in the week ahead. Father, any lies we believe, I pray that you just bring them to mind and bring your truth to mind so that we can deal with them and get them out of our hearts, get them out of our lives. And Father, may you deeply root us in your truth and your love that we might be good trees that produce good fruit out of the overflow of our hearts full of God's love I pray, Father, pour out your love around us. In Jesus' name, amen.